Welcome to the Eternal Family Podcast class. This is class number four, where we begin to turn to the family of the covenant, the family of Christ. If we want to improve our earthly mortal families, we need to understand the principles that Jesus teaches in his gospel that are part of the covenant or the family of Christ. Okay, let me go back to our premise. We talked on our very first class that you belong to three families, all of which can be eternal families. What's the first family you belonged to? The first family you were a part of is the family of Heavenly Father and premortal life. So going back in time, we were a family. We were children of heavenly parents. So we have a heavenly father and a heavenly mother and we became members of their family. So there's family number one. We then come down to earth and we four families here. Um, I was the child of Jetty and Tracy Dunford. I married Jennifer. Bryce and Jennifer have had children. We form families. So now we have an earthly family my earthly family. And I am trying to improve those family relationships. Here I am here trying to get better at family. I want to make my family last. But this isn't the only family I belong to. These aren't the only two families I belong to, right? If I make covenants with Christ, he becomes my parent. One of the unique doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and we get it from the Book of Mormon, is that we can belong to another family, the family of the covenant, the family of Christ. So in one sense, God is my father. In another sense, God can become my father. Do you see the difference between those? What family am I talking about if I'm talking about God is my father? This one. But there are scriptures that say you can become a son of God. You can become a daughter of God. What family are we talking about if becoming a son of God is the discussion? This one, this third one, the family of the covenant. I'm going to call it the family of Christ. Everyone turn to Mosiah chapter uh, 5. Let's read verse 7. Benjamin, after he talks about becoming children of Christ, he teaches a very powerful truth. Who will read it for me? Mosiah 5, 7. And this is unique to our doctrine. I don't know very many Christian organizations who would say they believe this, but we believe in three families. Here's the third one. And now because of the covenant which you have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he has spiritually begotten you. For ye say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. So you have become his sons or daughters. Do I need to become a son of Heavenly Father? I forever will be. I forever will be a son of Heavenly Father. But I can become a son of Christ if I make covenants, if I take upon me the covenant. So I have three families. Now, does, does Christ have a bride? Does Christ have a wife? 
Is he married in that sense symbolically? Yes, all throughout the scriptures, who's the wife of Christ? The church. And am I born of the church? What's behind that door? A baptismal font. That's the church's womb. Where I go in that womb and I'm completely encased in water, just like I was encased in my mother's. Do you see the symbolism? Three families. And that's what we've been talking about. I also love in this verse, uh, Genesis, but um, it says, you say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name, and your heart is the source of your blood, and you share a bloodline with your family. Isn't that interesting? We tie them all together, don't we? Okay, so our structure has been, if I belong to three eternal families, the best way to make this, this earthly family better is to turn where? Where do I learn the lessons of how to have a better earthly family? First, where do I turn? That one. So we've spent the last two or three weeks saying, what lessons do I learn? And I'm going to testify, and I'll say this as loudly and as powerfully as I can. You want to have a better earthly family? Be their child. Let them into your life. Have a relationship with Heavenly Father. Probably the greatest thing you can do. Would you agree that the best thing I could do to be a better father in my family with my children is to have a close personal relationship with Heavenly Father? So, the best way to improve the middle family is to be an active member of that family. And so we talked about letting Heavenly Father into your life, having a father-child relationship with Him. When Jesus was on the cross, He called Him Abba. Abba, Father. The best translation into English of the word Abba is guess what? Daddy. What kind of relationship did he have with Heavenly Father? Now, the very best thing I can do to improve this earthly family is to have a relationship with Heavenly Father. Then last week, we talked about lessons learned from their parenting. What do you learn from Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother and their parenting that are lessons you want to emulate in your eternal family, in your earthly family. That's what we talked about last week. Any thoughts about that in the week that's ensued? Have you had any thoughts about lessons you've learned from eternal parents about things you'd like to emulate? Just wanna give you a chance if you had any insights. What were some of the things we talked about? I love Heavenly Father keeps his family, what was the word we used? Central. That's a great skill set to have. Heavenly Father looks at his children individually. That's a great skill set. Okay, unfortunately, we could spend weeks there, but we, we won't. So we talked about how in the temple they, they explore the why of creation. Um, and I, I went to the temple um, for a session this last weekend, and I looked at it with a family lens, uh, which was so fascinating because I've been through a few times, like I go all the time, but um, seeing 
Well, so we go through the temple for the dead, right? But we take a single name, and it has to be done individually, right? So he loves not just his living on the earth children individually, but he loves his passed away children, the, those who are on the other side of the veil. And he wants us to love them too. And so as I take a family member who I found to the temple, I'm not only connecting myself to my God, but connecting myself to my family member and her to my God. Do you see the brilliance of that? And, and doing it in a way that talks about God's plan. So the only way I can connect with her is if I connect her to Heavenly Father, and I'm connected to Heavenly Father. Now, one of the lessons I've learned is, I'll use this. Here's me, and here's my wife. And we work really hard on this relationship. But there's a better way to make that a better relationship. What's a better way? Is if I do this and she does this, what happens here? It's just natural. If I have a relationship with Heavenly Father and she has a relationship with Heavenly Father, what does it do to the two of us? That's the brilliance. And that's why I love this idea of looking at that family to improve this family. So here's where we're going to go for the next couple of weeks. Now that we've done that, and we could spend so much time looking at this family as a pattern to improve the middle family. But we need to move on. So now we're going to do this. Now we're going to turn this direction. And just like I testify, you want to improve your earthly family? Look to your heavenly family as an example. If you want to improve your earthly family, look to the family of the covenant. Now I want to show you what they did with the proclamation. I blew it up so we can see the whole proclamation. So let me zoom in. Where do we find references to family number one? Right at the beginning, right? Second paragraph, each is a beloved. All human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved spirit, son or daughter of heavenly parents. So how does the proclamation begin? Proclamation begins with this family, right? And then it starts talking about which other family? Husband and wife and children. So right in the middle of the proclamation is which family? Family number two. And then towards the end of the proclamation, guess what we find? Coincidence? Not at all. This proclamation was put together in this pattern that we have three eternal families and improving the middle one by looking back to the heavenly one is what we've been talking about. But now we're going to look this direction. And I think one of the most profound sentences in the proclamation is this one right here. If you want a better family, if you and your spouse want a better relationship, if you want to be a better parent, if you want to improve your earthly family, how do you do it? Happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of 
the Lord Jesus Christ through his church. There's family number three. So if you want to improve the middle family, we need to focus on certain teachings <coughs> and certain principles of the covenant. Now, all of you, I assume you all graduated from high school, right? Some of you haven't. But you've all done group work. You've all been in a group and you've had to do a group assignment. And you all hate that, right? No. You will. Believe me, by the time you're done, you will hate it. What is the challenge of group work? Especially writing a paper. Have you ever written a paper as a group? Yeah. When I was, when I was studying at the university, there were several times we had to write a paper as a group. Now, the problem with writing a paper as a group is getting all these different people to agree on how, it, what it should say. Now, tell me what you know about the 15 prophets, seers, and revelators that we sustain. They're very different. They're very strong-willed. They have strong opinions. What would it take to get those 15 to agree on what principles of the gospel make a family successful? How long do you think they debated about it first? They ended up with, guess how many on the list? They ended up with nine. They ended up with nine principles. Prophets, seers, and revelators say successful marriages and families are established and maintained on these nine principles. How long did they debate the nine? And what words aren't on there? Can you think of a couple gospel words that are not on that list? Words like service, humility, hope. There's a lot of great words that didn't make the list. How long did they debate? How long did they discuss? How long did it take to come up with this list? I will tell you, I have been studying this document intensely from the day it came out, almost 30 years ago. I have studied those nine words more than any nine words in any piece of paper in any text. Because I've asked myself, why those nine words? Why those, not words, principles, why those nine principles? Because I want a successful family and they've told me there are nine principles of the gospel that are most likely to make families successful. Now, it seems to me we, could, we should spend a lot of time talking about what principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ make families most successful? Now, here's what I noticed. I've stared at these words more than I can possibly tell you. Here's what I've noticed. There's a relationship between them. There's nine words. I think they come in three pairs and one triplet. Let's look at the first two. Your family is most likely to be successful if it includes what two principles? Faith and 
prayer. Do you see the relationship? Faith in prayer is how I get Christ and the Father into my life. Faith and prayer are a pair. And then another pair. Your family will be most successful if it includes what two principles? Repentance and forgiveness. Do you see how those two go together? So I've got a pair of faith and prayer. I've got a pair of repentance and forgiveness. Now, when I speak of repentance, going back to here, me and my wife, is it this repentance? Of course. But it's mostly this repentance. I have to apologize. I make a lot of mistakes. I hate to tell you this, but you're going to marry a sinner. You're going to marry a sinner, and so will they. And so it's going to require a lot of repentance. And you're going to have to apologize to your spouse many times. But if we understand repentance and repentance, forgiveness and forgiveness, Of all the people on this planet, who should I forgive the fastest and the most? My wife. And if I do, if I do, Heavenly Father will forgive me just as fast and just as often. And then I think there's a triplet. So we've got a pair of family and prayer. We've got a pair of forgiveness and repentance. And then we've got a triplet. Respect, love, and compassion. We will speak about that as a triplet, as a triplet, a triangle. And if you want my personal opinion, those three make up what I would call charity. Can you have love without respect? You can, and it's not charity. Can you have love and can you have love and respect without compassion? You can and it's not charity. You can have compassion and respect without love, and it's not charity. I have seen spouses that love each other, have compassion for each other, but don't respect each other, and that's not charity. I have seen spouses who respect and love each other, but don't have compassion. That's not charity. Charity is respect, love, and compassion. And then the last pair is a perfect balance. We have to balance what two concepts? Now, the very first commandment Heavenly Father gave coming out of the creation was, I, God, worked for six days, and now I'm going to rest, and therefore you do the same thing. What was the very first commandment coming out of the creation? Work and rest. So do you see where we're going to go? Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be focused on what principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ will make family most successful. And we're going to start with faith and prayer. So tonight, let's tackle faith. Faith and family. Having faith and family. Now, I have struggled all my life to really put my hands on what faith is. I can quote the same scriptures you can quote. But I wanted to know what is faith. 
And when I ask people, what's faith? They say things like, well, faith is action. Okay, great. But is all action faith? So faith is action, but not all action is faith. So what's faith? Faith is hard to define. And I wanted to put my hands on it because if I'm going to be a better father, I have to have faith. Well, what does that mean? I want to have more faith. What do I do? I have more faith. What does it mean to have more faith? What is faith? So what I want to do tonight is show you the end of that journey that I came to in hopes that it will save you a little time and maybe a benefit to you. Maybe you come to different answers, but I want to show you what is faith. I want faith to be something livable, practical, that you walk out that door saying, I know how to have more faith. So I came to the conclusion that faith is two things going on simultaneously. Let me see if I can point out what are the two things. Now, there's some great scriptures that talk about faith, and I know Alma 29, and I know Ether chapter 12. I'm going to go to Hebrews. Can we start in Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. I need someone to read. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Anyone want to read? Abby? Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. The substance of things hoped for. The substance of things hoped for. That's not very clear. That doesn't really give me much... It's the substance of things hoped for. But then all of a sudden, the next phrase is almost the opposite of what you expect. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and, keep going, Abby. The evidence of things not Faith is evidence. Which is ironic because most of us think faith is the absence of evidence, Right. I can't prove that the Book of Mormon is true. Therefore, what do I have to do? I have to have faith. We assume that faith is the absence of evidence. That's where you have faith. Because I can't prove that the Book of Mormon is true, I have faith in it. But in a totally different sense, faith is evidence. Now, my analogy for faith, my image, I'm going I'm to liken. Here's my symbol. This is my symbol of faith for two reasons, for, for the two reasons we're going to talk about. Faith is like this pyramid. Now, this is Chichen Itza in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. Tell me what part of that is the temple. Is this whole building the temple? Do you climb the little stairs and then go down into the temple? No, what's the temple? This is the temple. Now, what does this temple sit on? A massive foundation. Faith is evidence. And every layer of evidence makes the foundation of your faith. Faith is evidence in the unseen. Let me say it a different way. In the school of the prophets, when Joseph Smith made a, a, a school of the prophets for the early brethren, he, he wrote a curriculum for them. 
And the curriculum was a series of lectures called the Lectures on Faith. That was the School of the Prophets curriculum, the Lectures on Faith. Lecture two is the story of how faith is born. How is faith born? Well, notice our definition. Faith is evidence. Now listen to Joseph Smith describe how faith is born. Ready? Here are the lectures on faith. Let's go to the second lecture. And I want to focus on this sentence. Faith is born when God manifests himself to man. That's my evidence. Faith is born when he reaches out to you. And you know it. When you have felt him. And you know it. Joseph said, the object of the foregoing quotation is to show to this class the way by which mankind were first made acquainted with the existence of God. That it was by a manifestation of God to man. Now, what happened when God manifested himself to you? The very first time, the very first time God manifested himself to you and you knew it, you felt a power of an unseen being and you had evidence that he lived. Guess what happened? You had a layer of faith born. Let me tell you mine. I was seven years old. I went to South Jordan Elementary School, not the current one, the old one that's been torn down. I was in second grade. My mom had gone to California on a singing tour and like moms do, she brought me home a gift. It was the coolest ball I had ever seen. It was a Super Bowl and they didn't sell them in Utah. So I was the coolest kid in the school because I had a Super Bowl. The thing just picked up energy as it bounced. It was the bounciest ball I've ever owned in my whole life. Now, South Jordan Elementary School had a side entrance that was an alcove. So imagine that's open. Here are the doors to the school. There's a wall there. There's a wall there. There's a floor and a solid ceiling. Five solid surfaces and the bounciest ball you could ever imagine. We invented the greatest game ever to exist, and we called it suicide. We drew a line in the middle of the alcove, and that was the pitcher's mound. And so we spread out, and the pitcher got to throw the ball. You had to hit a wall first. But everyone who got hit by the ball was out. Now, when the ball came to stop, whoever grabbed the ball was the new pitcher. And the way you win is you get everyone out except for you. Greatest game ever. And the best part about the game is no one could play without me because I had the ball. Now, I was always a really tall, skinny kid. I hit six feet tall in sixth grade. In ninth grade, I was 6'3", and I weighed 122 pounds. You can imagine what I looked like, right? I was never the cool kid. I was always the tall, skinny kid. But for the first time in my life, I was the popular kid because I had the ball. Kids would come to school saying, are we going to play suicide today? Well, is Bryce here? <laughs> We're going to play suicide today. <laughs> then one day the ball bounces out into the field and is lost. 
Now, 30 little second graders go rushing out to find the ball. We got to find that ball. Whoever touches it is the pitcher. And we couldn't find the ball. And the longer we couldn't find it, people start to shuffle off. I'm devastated. Can you imagine? I've lost not my ball. I've lost my identity. (laughs) And pretty soon it's just me looking for the ball. And I am desperate. So I prayed. Now, I can imagine that was an interesting prayer for Heavenly Father to hear. Somewhere there's wars going on and people are dying. And up comes a seven-year-old saying, help me find my Super Bowl. (laughs) But I did. I prayed. I said, Heavenly Father, please help me find my Super Bowl. Before the bell rings and the fourth graders come out. And as soon as I said amen, as I live and breathe, I swear on my life, as I... As I prayed and said, Amen, I was standing over a weed and I noticed something underneath it and I brushed the weed aside and at my feet was my Super Bowl. And I picked it up and said, Thank you. Oh, thank you. And I heard a voice that changed my life. He simply said, you're welcome. I knew he lived. I knew he lived. I knew he was real and I knew he knew who I was and I knew he cared about me. And that day, do you know what happened? I had evidence. I had evidence of the unseen. Now, with that layer of evidence, how am I going to call upon God the next time I need him? Greater confidence. How strong is that temple now with that layer of evidence? And if I call on God with greater evidence, what's going to happen? He's going to manifest himself to me. And he's going to manifest himself to me. And over and over and over again, And every time he touches me, I have a layer of evidence. Do you see where faith comes from? Faith comes from increasing your evidence in the unseen. And I would say, you want to increase your faith? Reach out to him so that he touches you. And every time he does, it will add a layer of faith. Now, here's the challenge. Why do you think they built this temple like this in the Yucatan Peninsula? Why did that temple need this? You know where Yucatan is? Tell me what this temple's gonna face over the millennia. Hurricanes, earthquakes, volcanoes. So why did they build a temple like this? Because they know it's going to be beaten. If you have evidence of God, it's going to be tested. I guarantee your faith is going to be tested. So aspect number two of faith is what are you going to do when the storm hits? What are you going to do when the hurricane hits? Is your temple going to stand? A, do you have layers? And B, are your layers going to stand 
the heat of the test. So let me read this quotation from C.S. Lewis. I think this is a perfect description of faith. I used to assume that the human mind, that if the human mind once accepts a thing as true, it will automatically go on regarding it as true until some real reason for reconsidering it turns up. In fact, I was assuming that the human mind is completely ruled by reason. It is not. For example, my reason, now he lived in the 50s, he died in 63, so think back in the 60s. My reason is perfectly convinced by good evidence that anesthetics do not smother me and that properly trained surgeons do not operate until I am conscious. But that doesn't alter the fact that when they have me down on that table and they clasp their horrible mask over my face, a mere childish panic begins inside of me. I start thinking I'm going to choke and I'm afraid they will start cutting me up before I am properly under. In other words, I lose my faith in anesthetics. It is not reason that is taken away my faith. On the contrary, my faith is based on reason. It is my imagination and my emotions. And I'm going to add a specific emotion. It's fear. Fear causes us to let go of faith. The battle is between faith and reason on one side and emotion, fear, on the other. Now, just the same thing happens about Christianity. I am not asking anyone to accept Christianity if his best reasoning tells him that the weight of evidence is against it. That is not the point where faith comes in. Let me emphasize that. God will never ask you to believe in something that doesn't make sense to you. He'll never say, just believe it anyway. That is not faith. It is not an act of faith to believe in something that doesn't make sense to you. Let me tell you what faith is. But supposing a man's reason decides that the weight of the evidence is for it, I can tell that man what is going to happen to him in the next few weeks. There will come a moment when there is some bad news or he is in trouble or he's living among a lot of other people who don't believe it. And all at once, his emotions, his fears will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his belief. Or else there will come a moment where he wants a woman, or he wants to tell a lie, or he feels very pleased with himself, or he sees a chance of making a little money in some way that's not per perfectly fair or honest. Some moment, in fact, in which it would be very convenient if Christianity were not true. And once again, his wishes and desires will carry out a blitz. Now, this is the brilliant line. Now, faith in the sense in which I am here using the word is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your fear. Faith is the art of holding on even when you're afraid. Because way too many people let go when the storm hits. Let me give you an example. Coming out of high school, no one doubts that there's an eternal companion out there for them. My daughter, when she graduated from high school, she knew that there was an eternal companion out there. She didn't doubt that. She was fully confident. Her patriarchal blessing said something about him. Then she turned 20, 21, 22, 23, 
24, 25. And every time she gets older, what starts to happen? Now, she knows the promises. She knows the promises. But the older she gets, what starts to happen? Fear, doubt, worry. Now, if she lets go of her faith and marries any old person just because she's afraid she'll never find an eternal companion, she lost her faith. Now, why did she lose her faith? She let go of what she knows is true when the fear came. Do you see what faith is? Faith is gathering layers. Are you reaching out to Heavenly Father constantly so that you gain layer after layer after layer? When was the last time you could honestly say the divine touched you? That's what you can be doing. You want to improve your family? Get more and more layers of Heavenly Father. Grow in faith. And then number two, when the storm hits, hold on. Hold on. Let me illustrate. Turn with me to, Mo, or to Matthew chapter 14. Let me show you someone lose faith in a moment of fear. Matthew 14, this is Peter walking on the water, Jesus walking on the water. Turn to the New Testament, Matthew 14. All right. They got in this boat at 6 p.m. It is now the fourth watch. Now, the, the night was divided into four watches. So the first watch was 6 to 9, second watch was 9 to midnight, third watch was midnight to 3. So when's the fourth watch start? 3 a.m. So they started rowing at 6 p.m. And when does Jesus come? Nine hours later. Middle of the night, dark storm on a boat. You ever been on a boat in the middle of a storm? It is terrifying. Now they see Jesus coming. And Peter says what we all say. If you see Jesus in the middle of the storm... Walking above the storm, what would you say? What would you say to him? Well, first of all, they see, we got to read this first. Jesus, they see him walking and tell me what he says. Three things. What does he say? Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid in the storm. So what, what would you ask if you were Peter having been in a boat for nine hours that's filling, filling with water and could be sunk any moment now, what would you say? Lord, can I come? Can I be with you? Can I get out of this boat and walk with you? And what does Jesus always say to that? When you say, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come into thee on the water. Jesus says, get out of the boat, come. Now, how much confidence does Peter have in Jesus? How many layers of faith does Peter have in Jesus? A lot. And so when he says, come out of the boat, what does Peter do? Does he test the water? How many of you think he reached over and tested the water? If he did that, is it solid? How did he get out of the boat? He jumped 
fully confident. That's number one. That's having layers of faith. I know the divine. I have so much layers of faith. He jumped out of the boat. The problem is, when he saw the wind boisterous, when the storm hit, he was afraid. And he started to sink. How many times has the storm hit and you started to question? You started to wonder and worry. How many times do you see the storm and you sink? Do you see what he did? He had so much confidence when he jumped out. And then he saw the storm and he sunk. That's faith. Luckily, he cries out and says, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him, pulled him up and said what? Why did you doubt? How many times do you let doubt cause you to let go of what you know is true? There's the test. You want a strong family? Have more and more layers. And when the storm hits, what do you hold on to? You hold on to what you know is true. I would add that how often do we let fear bind us? Because that's how the scripture is talking about it. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it says, For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And in Mosiah, the scripture we were just looking at a little bit ago, Mosiah chapter 5, um, in the verse after we were talking about where it talks about becoming sons and daughters, it says, and under this head you are made free. There is no other head whereby you can be made free. There is no other name given whereby salvation cometh. I would that you should take upon you the name of Christ. All you that have entered into the covenant with God, talking about that third family, um, that you should be obedient unto the end of your life. So, our, our covenant with God, our faith makes us free from fear, which will bind us. Yes. It, it puts us in but that moment, right? Let me give you an example, okay? Just a couple of examples, right? I know the promises of tithing. I know what the promises are. I can quote them. I know the promise of tithing. But we're on a fixed income. We don't have a lot of money. And that baby needs food. That baby needs formula. And I can't pay my tithing and feed that baby. Now I know the promises. But what happens? My worry, my fear. What if I can't feed that baby? And I'm tempted to do what? Spend the money on the food. But what do I know? What do I know? What's the promise? Okay, you pay your tithing. Now, do you hold on to what you know is true? Or do you let go in fear? And a thousand examples. You know Heavenly Father lives. 
And then something comes that tests your faith. Pain comes. A question comes. Do you let go of what you know is true because you're afraid? That's the test of faith. You'll never have a successful family without major tests. My wife and I made three decisions years ago. We were going to have a large family. We have 10 kids. I wanted to be a teacher and she wanted to be a stay at home mom. Now I know the promises. You want to know how many times fear made us wonder if we're really committed. And we were tempted to walk away. Some people are, I don't believe in marriage. I have way too much evidence that it doesn't work. But you know the promises that Heavenly Father has given. Will you hold on to the promise? Or you, will you let go because you're afraid? There's a lot of evidence that says family doesn't work. That marriage doesn't work. But this document says it does. In this document, Heavenly Father says you can make it work. You know which document I'm talking about. So do you hold on to the promise in spite of all the fear you see? Families are expensive. How do you afford it? Oh, we can't have any children. We can't have any more children. We can't afford it. Do you hold on to the promises? Even when it's scary. Do you see why faith and family are so essential? Gather evidence. And then when the test comes, hold on to the promise. You know Heavenly Father loves you. You know that. I can quote so many scriptures. Your patriarchal blessing makes it clear. But here comes something. And you're going to wonder. Does he really love me? And fear might cause you to let go. Faith is the art of holding on to what you know is true. Even when you have evidence that scares you. Even when things are scary. Faith and family. So something interesting that I noticed uh, when you're talking about uh, how like faith and fear like counteract each other. Um, so in the, the Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1, um, and the first part when it says like faith is now faith is the substance of things hoped for um, there's a Joseph Smith translation that changes the, the substance to be assurance so um, faith is assuring the things that we hope for and so when we have fear that's that's kind of having that's having doubt of the things that we hope for you right? got it and so when we have these things that we hope for it kind of just completes that hope and then becomes the evidence that we need in order to be able to believe it Beautifully stated. Can you go back five verses? Everyone go back five verses. Find that Hebrews 11.1 1, and go back five verses. This is what I love. So verse 1 is the evidence verse. Now go back five verses. Go to chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, and go to the last five verses of that verse and just hear what Paul is saying. Ready? 
Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. Cast not away your confidence. Trust the promise. There is an eternal companion somewhere. God loves you. And there's going to be evidence that's going to cause you to doubt that. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, there it is. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. We are not of them who draw back. Do not let go. How many people do you know have a testimony of the truth and then something they don't understand trickles up? And what do they do to what they know? What do they do to everything they know? (sighs) Throw it away. Because of one little question, they let go in a moment of confusion or darkness or question. Hold on to the promises you know are true. That's faith. And she talks about, she was talked about to me before how her patriarchal There's a lot of things about like marriage and like other things that never happened in this life. But she knows that it will happen in the next one because she's been promised stuff. And she yep. has that faith. She holds on in spite of how much evidence that would cause her to fear. Now, I, I promise you, when it comes to questions of family, marriage is scary. Marriage is a risk. You're putting your heart in the hands of another human being. Having a child is scary. Family brings a lot of scary moments. Know the promises. Have a relationship with Heavenly Father so you know the promises. Build that layer of faith. How much evidence do you have that God lives and He loves you? You should be continually adding to that temple of faith. And then when the storm hits that makes you question, You hold on. I'm not running away because I'm scared. I trust the promises. Do you remember when Joseph lost the scriptures? He lost 116 pages. Do you remember what Heavenly Father said to him afterwards? One of the most profound things. Joseph lost scriptures that we still don't have today. And Heavenly Father simply said what? Section 3, verse 5. Remember also the promises. What did Joseph do? Let's talk it through. Joseph has hundreds of pages of Scripture. Martin Harris wants to take him home. Joseph knows it's not right. What has the Lord promised about translating the Scriptures? Now, what's he afraid of? What's, what's he afraid of? What does Martin Harris have that makes Joseph not want to or want to make him happy? Martin is paying for everything. Martin will pay for the translation of the Book of Mormon. So if Martin gets mad and he leaves, what's Joseph going to do? So Joseph was afraid of losing Martin Harris. So he lent the scriptures to him and lost them. 
And what was the lesson the Lord said? You should have remembered the promise. What was the promise? If Martin Harris had gotten offended and left, what would God have done? He would have sent someone else. Remember, but what did Joseph do in a moment of fear? He let go. Remember the promises. I think it's also significant that Martin Harris was asking for the translation out of fear. Uh, it was his wife that was bugging him and threatening to leave him and divorce him and uh, take all the property with her in that divorce settlement if he didn't show some evidence of the translation and of the work. Now, would the Lord have let that happen? No. But in fear, what did he do? I got to have some proof. Do you see how easy it is? I promise you in the coming days, your faith, your trust in the promises is going to be tested. A storm is going to hit that temple of faith. Will you hold on to what you know is true? One of the greatest keys to having a strong family is the ability to lay out layer and layer and layer of faith, constantly adding to my layers of faith. And then when the storm hits and I'm afraid, I hold on. Lord, I'm trusting you. I don't know how to do this, but I'm trusting. May we have faith. May your family have faith. Is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the eternal family. This has been class number four, the covenant of Christ. We have looked this time at faith. Will you ponder this week how having more faith in your personal life and in your family will bring blessings into your earthly mortal family and convert it into an eternal family?